0: Well, Welcome. It is great to get a chance to visit with folks who are in town. I've, I've, seen, I've seen Lauren Widener. Dave is at home with sick children, I believe. Uh, I have heard that Ann Elks is here, but I have not seen Ann. She's over here. So there's a lot of people that want to see you before you escape, and Lauren and many others that are here I didn't get a chance to see on the way in, but please know that there are some folks who have just been a part of our lives for so long that we're so grateful to get a chance to visit with them again. Um, let me tag on to what uh, Evan said in encouraging you to to get a copy of Ben Watson's book. Um, I mean, some of you guys would know Ben and uh, Kirsten and their family have been a part of the church for a while since they've been here in New Orleans. Uh, and And getting to... Hear theological convictions that sit in them. These are these folks are like-minded. They see the world through a biblical lens. Uh, ben has a unique platform. One of the reasons I want to encourage you to get the book, but I also want to encourage you to be praying for him, because as in reading the book, uh, I can't imagine his life is going to be very slow for a long time. Uh, there's going to be a huge amount of demand for people to have him on broadcasts and talk shows, et cetera, because he has a unique ability to see this issue and to communicate it to both black and white. And uh, I've tremendously enjoyed reading the book. I'm I'm suspicious that Ben's been writing books for years and and he hasn't told anyone, because this book is extremely well written and provoking and helpful. we had hoped to have Ben share some things with us in the summer. I met with Ben, I think it was June or July, uh, and asked him to share with the church some things that would help us. And, and I'm still going to uh, hopefully have him do this uh, when his schedule will allow after the football season. Because in, in listening to Ben, uh, I think you, you, in reading the book, you'll become aware that not everybody experiences life. Sees life the same way as you do. And by God's grace, uh, we are beginning to be a more diverse church. Uh, We have more people of color. Uh, We have uh, not only African American, but we would have uh, Asians and Latinos. and, And we're becoming more of a group of people who, in some ways, we get one another at the most important level but we don't get one another at a variety of other levels. And one of the things I wanted Ben to help us to do was to a church that's primarily been raised in a white community to get insights into what is it like to see life and to walk through life uh, when your background doesn't look like ours. Because that's what we're becoming and that's what we want to become. We want to become a church where people of all kinds of different backgrounds, can experience the grace of God together, and we can learn to help one another in categories that we didn 't even know somebody needed help in those categories so one of the things i 've done is i 've been reading through ben 's book is is making little notes in it whenever he highlights his response to the world and to activities how it affected him uh, it 's put me better in touch with the things that affect someone uh, of race someone uh, who's grown up in a world that's cluttered with white ideas, but yet you're trying to be a, a black person who's part of a community. And, and how do things affect you? And obviously, I wouldn't know that. Uh, but the book does an incredible job of communicating that. So I, I hope I hope you will take the opportunity to get a copy of it. I'm grateful that Ben would come and do some signing for us on on Tuesday, and if you're able to be there for that, uh, that would be a blessing. But if not, please get a copy of this. This is a social issue that is in the headlines every other day, isn't it? And and we don't really know what to do with it very well. And uh, this is why I think Ben's going to be quite in demand, because I think his book takes many people into a place that's very helpful. All right. Well, Merry Christmas. To you guys, uh, joy to the world. These are great songs, aren't they? You sing them in a totally new way when you really encounter Christ and you come into a saving experience with Him, don't you? Remember, these songs come into life for me. Uh, listen, what I want to do this morning is I'm gonna I'm not gonna gonna locate us in the in the manger scene this morning, but I'm gonna locate us in this event. This event, this enormous event, I think we've been celebrating Christmas since July 4th in the world. It seems like the stores, everybody's preparing room for something. I'm not quite sure it's the Savior, but they're preparing room for something at this time of year. And let's be honest, this preparation, all this noise and hoopla and decorations and activity, it doesn't happen without... Jesus Christ coming into this world. That's the the source of how this thing began this to be this global enormous event. But to really understand it, to fully benefit in our lives from this event is to actually you got to travel beyond the manger scene. You can't just be talking about shepherds and stars in the sky and, and amazing things that took place uh, in that miraculous event. You need some theology to accompany this story, and there's a wonderful theological word that's got a lot of depth to it that describes this event. It's it's a word called the incarnation. It describes the concept of the living eternal God who is spirit taking on the form of a man. And so the verses that we're going to look at today are not actually in the gospel stories. We're primarily going to land in Philippians chapter 2, which is an unpacking of this word incarnation and helping us understand it. <clears throat> but I, I want to put this in the mode of this morning, I, I want to I give a gift to the church. I want to give a gift to you as a person, as a member of this church. And <clears throat> I want to give the gift of humility to us. We've been studying in the last few weeks about how God has put his life in us in such a way that it's, it's like DNA code for us. It produces a particular life in us. And one of the traits and qualities of this life is the quality of humility. You know, I've given my own sort of little definition to humility. Humility is letting God put you in your life. Place And I, I wish I had weeks to just kind of take that little saying apart. God is up to something in this world. God is telling a giant, epic, adventurous story. And you and I are part of that. And it's very important that we recognize that. That we're not just these independent people living our own lives our own way. We're part of a giant story. And we have been given a place in that story, and we need to know that place, and we need to be enjoying the place that we've been giving and not craving a different place. But there's something in us that wants that. And the incarnation is this amazing story about even in the Godhead, there is God putting things in place. God the Father is going to put the Son in a place, in a manger, in a human body, to undergo mistreatment and to face judgment and death on a cross. God the Father is going to put his Son in that place, and God the Son, in amazing humility, is going to let God put him in his place. Now, you know, I kind of like that phrase because it's, it's a little edgy, it's a little bothersome. Nobody likes to be put in their place, right, put you in your place. Uh, <clears throat> but in God, that's what God's doing. His whole creation is things in a particular place. And it's good for us to appreciate that. So two passages that are going to help us is Colossians chapter 1, which we'll look at briefly first, and then Philippians chapter 2. But let's look at Colossians chapter 1 here. I believe it's in your outline. If not, you can... Turn in your Bibles to chapter one of Colossians, verse 13. Listen to this. It says, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness. Right? Remember, we were in darkness last week. The setting for the Christmas story is darkness, the domain of darkness. So he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us. To the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins, right? Remember that little phrase, forgiveness of sins, it's associated with darkness. If you want to understand why your, dark, your life takes on these dark dimensions, it's because sin is operating in our lives. And it brings with it the operation of darkness. Now going back to the main character in this passage, he is the image of the invisible God Father, this is the revelation of who you are. Lord, there's nothing more important to our lives than who you are. So Lord, we are here this morning remembering, celebrating, cherishing the story of a babe born in a manger. But Lord, that's not the beginning of your story. That babe in the manger does not define who you are. There's so much more. So God, open our eyes this morning to see who you are, for if we don't see who you are, we cannot possibly begin to find our place in your story. So help us, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Listen, this this Colossians 1 verse is a a massive find-your-place verse, right? You are in this story. And some of this kind of humbling what's in here, right? He has delivered us from the domain of darkness. So whatever darkness has been in us, that domain that we both lived in darkness and darkness was in us, the Bible actually says we were darkness. So darkness was a very defining thing about us. So right now, if you've encountered Christ, I imagine in your life, you can tell all kinds of stories about how light has come in your life, the way in which you live, the things that you treasure and value, the things you've been delivered from, the sins that no longer control you, you've been brought into light and your life is bearing the fruit of that. But how humbling is it to hear you didn't deliver yourself from darkness? How humbling is it for you to look across the church and see others and to know whatever light is in your life versus whatever light is in their life? is not because you're better than them. That comparison game in this category doesn't exist. The only story any of us have to tell about light in our lives is because of what he did. And that's very humbling. If there's any light, if I see anything at all clearly in my life and I take steps of obedience or I live in the good of that... It's because he has delivered us. Right? That's that's quite humbling. And then this this whole passage is interesting. You read this passage. This passage is it's like a, standing before an unexplored territory, and this this passage is a map. Or are walking onto a, a construction site, right? You ever walk on a construction site, and you see there's just building materials everywhere. Stacks of lumber, there's roofing materials are over here, there's cement over here. It's just a big pile of mess, and then there's this blueprint. And this blueprint tells everything where to go. And it assigns a place for it. And that's what this passage does right here. And it gives God a unique place that you and I have to fight to make sure we give him that place and we don't seek to take that place ourselves. It's in verse 17. Well, back of the verse 16. By him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and visible, thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. All things were created for him. So in some strange way, everything that's created... Every molecule that it makes up the walls in, this, in the buildings of this building, in the walls of this building, in your life, who you are, who I am, everything was created for him. So there's this homing device of why we exist that's for him. Everything exists for him. And he operates in this unique place because everything is created except him. He is the one eternal being that has no beginning and no end. Everything else is of a different order. Whether we're impressed with ourselves or not, whether we're impressed with someone else or not, whether we comparatively are better than somebody else or not, we are all creation, and God sits alone in who he is. Now, I'm going to bring this word glory into our conversation Because pride and humility and the operation of humility are very much about glory. Unfortunately for us, they're about seeking glory. They're about the idea that there's something about us that we can take creation. And make it for us somehow. It somehow furthers me. It advances me. It improves my reputation. It makes me stick out. It makes me be more appreciated. It enhances my status somehow. So there is in us this temptation to seek glory for ourselves. And we sang that song a little while ago about prepare him room. Let the King of glory, come in. And I'm going to make this point, and I want to make it carefully for us. If you and I ever, and I know we do, get into the game of grabbing for glory, we are reaching for something that once you touch it, it will totally corrupt you. Because it uniquely is for God, who is the creator who exists outside of being his own creation. You and I don't belong in the glory business. Satan tried to enter the glory business, didn't he? He saw that which belonged to God, the acclaim, the amazement, the awe, the applause, the praise, and he wanted some of it. I don't even know if he wanted all of it. He just wanted some of it. And it corrupted him and destroyed him as a being. Eve saw something of the glory of a God who possesses all knowledge of good and evil. And there was something glorious about that. I mean, hey, a lot of us just like to look like we're smart, right? I mean, so that's kind of understandable. We want to look like we know stuff. Well, Eve wanted to look like she knew things at a level like God knows things. She wanted all of creation to look at Eve and go, wow, wow. You want to know something? Go to Eve. I mean, boy, did she know some stuff. And so she took that tree. She reached for glory. I mean, listen, how many of you guys know she wasn't after the fruit, the fruity taste of an apple? She was after the glory of the knowledge that God possesses. And so when we do that, we corrupt our being. Adam and Eve corrupted the entire race. So I want to, I us to fall out of love, again, with some elements in this category, of the thought of touching glory as though that's a good thing. It's so alluring to us to do it, though. So I want to make us scared of it. Can I, can I try and do that with you this morning? All right, I think I put this in your outline. Here's what I'd say about touching glory. Glory is radioactive. You know those signs they put on stuff, radioactive? It makes you stay away from it, high voltage, right? None of y'all are like, oh, I wonder what that's all about. You know, I know to stay away from that kind of stuff. When, when electricity starts to hum at a distance, there's something in me that says, stay away from that. You know? All right, glory needs to be that way for us. Glory is mysterious. Glory is kryptonite in the Superman story. It's mysteriously going to undo Superman. Glory is like the ring in the Lord of the Rings. It's powerful and mysterious, and you need to be warned about it. It's alluring. And yet it's unwieldable. It calls out to man, but it answers to no man because it was not created for man. And as fallen human beings, this this hunger and quest is inside every one of us. When we fell from the position God had originally assigned us to, we now live in a realm and an existence where we are allured by glory. We are attracted to it It is a strange thing in our hearts. The more we seek it, the more obsessive we become, and the more it pollutes everything we are a part of. We do well to be intimidated by this mysterious attraction. The way in which some in in the Lord of the Rings were intimidated, they were afraid of the ring. Not everybody was, but some were quite afraid of it, right? You remember this? seen in the Lord of the Rings, the Fellowship of the Ring, where they have discovered that this ring is no longer lost. It's been found. This ring of power now can touch the world again and can access people's lives. And so this very important meeting is called in the city of the elves in Rivendell and uh, representatives from the elf kingdom and the man's kingdom and dwarf kingdom. They all come together in this meeting and it's led by a man named Elrond who, or he's actually an elf. He says, strangers from distant lands, friends of old, you have been summoned here to answer the threat of Mordor. Mordor was the land of evil. Middle earth stands upon the brink of destruction. None can escape it. You will unite or you will fall. Each race is bound to this fate, this one doom. Bring forth the ring. And the ring is brought out, this mysterious ring with all of its power. It's got this writing in it that Gandalf, the wise wizard, begins to explain what this writing says. And he speaks in a language that's unacceptable for the elves to hear. And he says, I do not ask for pardon, Master Elrond, for the black speech of Mordor may yet be heard in every corner of the West. The ring is altogether evil. But that's not what everybody's perspective is. There's a man there named Boromir and you can see the wheels turning in his head and his heart is drawn towards the mystery of this power. He wants it for himself. He says, no, it is a gift, a gift to the foes of Mordor. Why not use this ring? Give Gondor the weapon of the enemy. Let us use it against him. There's something about glory that's attractive. It looks like it's promising to us. It looks like it's offering us something good. But Aragorn, who leads the men in the movie, he wisely says, you cannot wield it. None of us can. The one ring answers to Sauron alone. It has no other master. Okay, listen, in a similar sobering way, glory belongs to and answers to only one. If you take it into your own life you will possess something you ha- you don't have the capacity for and that will corrupt you glory belongs to God who is outside of his own creation alone right? Isaiah chapter 42 verse 5 again it, it gives you this description of the God who's outside of his creation and possesses glory alone he says it says thus says God the Lord who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. Do you you see the uniqueness of God here? Do Do you awake daily with an awareness that you're breathing today because of God? God gives breath to us. We have life. And not just physical experience, but life in us, because God gives spirit to. Us. Do you know anybody who can give you that? Have you met anything in creation that can impart spirit to you, anything that can give breath to your existence. See, God is unique. It's like nothing else that we could ever know. He says, "I am the Lord. I've called you in righteousness." There is this thing called glory out there. This thing of praise and wonder and awe and amazement. And God says, I give it to no other. No other are to possess it but me. Now, remember where we started in going through this little DNA series that we're doing. We started by looking at Romans chapter 1 and the destructiveness of what happened to humanity somewhere in our past. And then the world that we live in and humanity was wrecked by it. And do you remember the fault line of this moment, Romans chapter 1, verse 21, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. The NIV translates that section this way, for although they knew God, they neither glorified him, right? So there was this giving of glory to God that they did not do. And they did not do it because they wanted it for themselves. They did not glorify God nor give thanks to him. But their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Okay, this is the result of touching glory. Warning If you seek glory for yourself, you will have this experience in your life. Glory suits God perfectly, but it corrupts us when it touches us. And it does this to us. We become futile in our thinking and our hearts become darkened. So, listen, in in the categories that we find ourselves uniquely chasing after glory for ourselves, you will find futile thinking and darkened hearts in those places because that's what glory does to us. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the creator. See, this realm of glory exists for the creator. It's for his unique status and place in everything, a status that you and I don't have. We don't Belong in the glory business. That word glory, that word honor, that's in one translation, it's doxazo, that it comes from the word to glorify, from what we get doxology or worship. It's about finding so much value in something that we step back in wonder and awe and appreciation and praise. It's the it's the weighty quality of the thing that we're observing. And there's something in us. That wants to feel like there's such weighty quality in me that you would observe something in me and go, oh, Keith. Wow. And the moment I begin to want that, I am reaching to touch glory. And I will corrupt my own life in the process. Rather than letting the glory belong to God, man entered the glory game. And he took into his heart a quest that would do nothing but corrupt him and make him obsessive for something he could never possess but would incessantly chase after. That's what Satan did. That's what Eve did. We take into our lives something that we cannot wield. It's not made for us and we cannot wield it. Jerry Bridges, in his book, I Give You Glory, O God, says, what, what is your aim in life? Is it to be successful or happy or prosperous in whatever you choose to pursue? Is it to be well thought of as a parent or as a professional person or even as a Christian? All right, stop for a second. Now, you insert your own category here. What is your aim in life? Is it to be well thought of as fill in the blank? And what we tend to fill the blank in is with the things that we tend to have some kind of natural giftings and abilities that have created an identity for us. We've done them enough times where people identify that with us. And so, you know, you can grow up and you can be a young person who, you know, you just, just want to be appreciated as a gymnast or a cheerleader or an athlete, It's like you just are living to get people to notice that, you know, I'm not your everyday run-of-the-mill person. I'm a gymnast like no other. (laughs) And we'd like for people to, we'd like grandparents and people to show up at something that we do and go, wow, wow. Now, listen, I want to say, that's not wrong. But when you begin to get motivated in life to pursue glory from those things, you shackle that thing to misery. You know, you, whatever it is you want to be. You want to, you want to be a successful businessman. You want to be a guy who's got an education with some letters behind your name. And people look at that and go, wow, I can't even tell when your name stops. It just, it just keeps going. You must be so smart. Well, yeah, I am. And there's something about that makes you feel like, finally, someone noticed me. Right? I just want to be noticed. Okay, I'm Keith, I'm not, you know, I don't want to be well. I just want to be noticed. And it, this can be... Decent stuff, right? Not corrupt stuff. And i like, like, you know, I can't wait for somebody to recognize I am the drug dealer of all drug dealers. You know, I, most of us in here don't. We don't want to be noticed for that. But there's something even good. Would you just notice that I'm 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 pretty good at, at being a parent. I'm, I'm pretty good at. I'm I'm the funniest guy in the room. That's all. You know, I grew up class clown. When I show up, everybody laughs. And I just, if they laugh, I know I've been noticed. Listen, you can get this stuff in you in a lot of weird categories, can't you? But that's a good question for us. Does your aim terminate on yourself or your family? What's your true aim? If we're to glorify God in the way we live, we must make God's glory our primary aim. All other goals in life, both temporal and spiritual, must be secondary. We must seek first his kingdom and his righteousness before everything else. Listen, the the glory game corrupts everything it touches. Even good things. Let me share with you my miserable experience in the land of the glory games. Um, in my early 20s, got saved as a teenager but really didn't connect with any other believers very much so for years. Uh, so my, my first sort of group of Christians that I spent time with on a regular basis was in college at LSU. And into this setting came a very strange temptation for me. And I didn't notice it at first. As a matter of fact, it, it took years for God to begin to rewind my life and show me these things. So here I am in this setting, and um, I didn't realize until God showed me later how much that setting for me was becoming a platform, how much it was an opportunity for me. It an opportunity for me to be noticed, an opportunity for me uh, to be well thought of as whatever, as a young Christian, uh, as, a, as a guy who could influence other people for the kingdom of God. And it was an opportunity for that. And so I began to be aware of gatherings where we would have meetings. And, you know, I, I didn't need to have a major role. I didn't need to have some title or some position. But I, you know, I would have liked that, you know, kind of would have made me feel like somebody else is noticing Not just me, that, you know, pretty exceptional. And so we would gather around. We could be in a prayer circle. And, you know, I'm kind of letting people pray here, pray here, pray here. While I am trying to construct in my mind the mother of all prayers. You know, mine's going to be dripping with insights into the moment and the hour, and it's going to feel like prophecy, like Isaiah's in the room with us, and it's going to be dripping with theology and quoting Scripture passages no one knew were in the Bible. All right, this is what's in me, right, in this setting. And and that's a good setting, and being a Christian is a good thing, and praying is a good thing. These are all good things until they become an opportunity for glory and then they all get corrupted. And one of the most miserable experiences in my life was when God decided to peel back the mystery of why I really did what I did in a lot of settings. And I don't I don't think any of our motives are always 100% one thing, but there was way too much of my self-advancement, my interest in being noticed, being appreciated. Uh, in so much of what I was doing. So God just began to revisit things. It's like It was like my early 20s. God says, okay, I, I need to show you this. And peeled back. And I, I came in touch with this pride that was in me. I, I didn't know what to do with it. And then God just... It got worse and worse. It was like God showed me stuff, and I'd I'd be like, okay, God, I see that. And God would be like, oh, no, you just think you see it. (laughs) And then he'd show me some more, and I'd be like, okay, God, oh, God, I I get it. Oh, my gosh, I can't believe it. And God would be like, oh, no, we're just getting started. (laughs) And so this went on literally for years. And I can remember, um, if you've been a Christian for a real long time and you've been in New Orleans, you know, there's like one Christian bookstore, Maranatha Christian Bookstore. You guys remember that on Transcontinental? You walk in back then, there's like eight albums available and like four books. Nobody was writing books, so it just wasn't a lot going on back then. And, but there was a book in that bookstore by Andrew Murray called Humility. A little book but the title leapt at me because I was dealing with these issues and they were just devouring me. And I thought, there, that looks like it will help. <laughs> so I picked that book up. And, and it hurt a lot before it ever helped, but it did help. It was tremendously helpful in God revealing so much of what was really motivating me and what I was really after and, and how in some ways I was, I was using settings and people to further something that would make me feel like I was more important. I was valued. I was appreciated or accepted or applauded. All right, so this went on for years, and I, I'm, there's a reason why I'm telling you how long that went on, because uh, I, don't, I don't think this sort of revelation about ourselves, especially in this area, is a one-message-I'll-repent-and-go-on thing. Uh, it was years of sitting with God and letting him undo me. Uh, Letting, letting me see how big it was. Um, I told somebody this week the story. I actually uh, sat in a parking lot up here on Veterans Highway in my car and cried and cried and cried because I was seeing these things at such a pace in my life, and I was overwhelmed by them, and I thought, I, I am powerless to fix this. I am, this is so much who I am. I don't, I don't even know where to start. God, why are you showing me this? It was horrible. Before it became tremendously freeing, and the most wonderful revelation I think I've ever had in my life. You know, I, I, I look back now. A lot of these things you look back on and you learn more about them. You know, if if humility is letting God put you in your place, uh, I can tell you right now the way pride operated in me, I would never have been a pastor. Not because I didn't desire a position that would put me in front of people. But the problem with pride is there's there's pieces of it. Some of it is very ambitious and aggressive, and some of it is scared to death. See, pride is scared to death to fail and it can't possibly take that risk. Now, some people are, are not as heavy in this category. They're more heavy in the ambition category, so they stick their necks out. They, they're everything to everybody in every way, and they don't care if they fail. They just want to give themselves a chance. Okay, that's not how pride operated in me. For me, it would be better for you to assume I could do that than for me to try it and fail. Does that make sense? Matter of fact, I felt better about that. I felt like, well, you know, I'm not, I'm not doing what he's doing, but you know if I did I, I mean I, I think I'd probably do that pretty well but I would never take the chance of doing it because if I did it and failed I'd prove to myself you're really not all that hot dude you really don't have it together all that well so better to not try it than to fail at it well I'd have never been a pastor there's way too much to fail at there's way too much by way of uh, expectations, responsibilities, and activities that you just step out and do them and you fail at them. My pride would never have let me put, let God put me in my place. And see, that's, that's how pride is operating in every one of us. Humility lets us become the beings that lets God put us in whatever place he wants to put us in. And listen, not every place is the same, It's not like, okay, if we're all really humble, then we all, you know, work for less than minimum wage and, you know, we don't aspire to do anything. No, 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 no. You know, kings who rule nations are to be humble. Anybody is to be humble because we're part of God's creation. Jerry Bridges goes on and says, we must not only make it our aim to glorify God, we should also aim not to seek glory or praise for ourselves. Isaiah 42, God says, I am the Lord. That is my name. I will not give my glory to another or praise to idols. God is jealous for his glory, and he will not share it with us. This speaks not only to our actions, but to our motives, which lie totally open before God. Listen, if you want to get serious about getting out of the glory game, then you're going to have to do what he says here. We're going to need to also aim not to seek for glory. You're going to have to first come to grips with how is it that you seek for glory? And listen, you'll get good at it. Nobody nobody, has like a blue light over their head that when it comes on, it says officially seeking glory right now. In what I'm saying, I'm officially seeking glory. Impressed with me? Officially seeking glory. No one comes out and says that kind of stuff. And and if you get good at the game, you don't want to stick out. You want people to applaud you without anybody knowing that you helped create the applause. You get good at it. But if you want to get serious about getting rid of that, you're going to actually have to do this. You're going to have to actually aim to not seek for glory you're going to have to recognize the places where you go to create glory and stay away from them. The things that you say to create glory and don't say them. The being overlooked and not being recognized and you don't insert yourself to make Wait, wait but I was, I was in the picture too. And you got overlooked and you're okay with that. And you know what? When you love God receiving glory, you will begin to love you not receiving it. And listen, this is the, I, I don't know if I can give you a better Christmas gift. I'm honest here in telling you this. Because it, it liberates you from so many things. Right? The comparison game of what's going on in this person's life or that person's life that eats us up. Like, oh, can you believe he, look at her, Look, can you believe she died? And we're just eaten up by that instead of being able to celebrate what God has appointed for someone else. People look at their life and say, Oh, God, look how wonderful that work that you're doing in their life is. Now, you know what a lot of people do when God starts doing this great work right here in this person? They gather around it and start doing this. And if you're after applause and they're giving it to somebody else, it's going to drive you nuts. And what will drive you nuts even more is when you recognize that that person's going, come on, bring it to me, applaud me. And you get paralyzed by that. You you don't have to be. If If you're out of the glory game and you're interested in God receiving the glory and you see somebody who excels at something, it does something excellent, it's a reflection of God's glory and work. And you can celebrate it. And you don't have to be controlled by it. You can actually applaud it and enjoy people doing things that you don't do and you don't get to do because humility lets God put you in your place rather than demanding that you be in another one. Well, listen, this is is a glory-grabbing world, and into that world comes the Christmas story, right? The King of glory, the Lord of glory is going to come into this glory games and the incarnation takes place. Not just a babe in a manger, that strange scene of a baby in such poverty. Okay, That's got some communication to it. But but Philippians chapter 2 puts us in touch with the theology of what was going on in that manger scene. Philippians chapter 2 verse 1 starts this way. The Apostle Paul says, If... count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Right, before we read the next part in this verse, this is an epistle. So this is the Apostle Paul writing to an existing group of believers in Philippi. And he starts with their world, and he puts his foot in their world, and he says, guys, y'all seem to be having a problem getting along seem to be having a problem loving each other and putting other people ahead of yourself. There's selfishness in your mix. There's some problems in your relationships with each other. There's a lack of sympathy and encouragement and affection going on. And he's about to press a button to fix that. And interesting, you know, I'm not into pressing one button in the Bible because the Bible presses several usually. He's about to press one button. He's about to fix this thing with Humility your problems with each other would be fixed by humility, right? He says, in humility, verse three, count others more significant than yourselves. Look in verse five. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, right? This is a DNA verse, isn't it? Right? You understand that internal working This mind is yours. It is the molecular makeup spiritually of who you are. Christ's mind is in you. Let it out. Let it be expressed. It's this mindset. He says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of God of a servant being born in the likeness of men. All right, this is the theology behind the manger scene. When you stare at that baby in the manger, this is what you're looking at. Not a cute baby in poverty. This Lord of glory who did not grasp his position as God, but became humanity himself his very creation. And being found in human form, everybody scratch your head with me, he humbled himself even further by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Listen, this humility, let me just move through this kind of quickly. This humility, the reason why Paul is teaching this is because there's relational problems amongst people. This humility is an enabler of godly relationships. It's not enough for us to say love each other. Because if, if the glory game is operating in me, I can even turn loving you into something about me. And you'll notice that that's really what's happening between us when I love you and you fail to love me back and all of a sudden that's an issue. You failed to return. I invested in you and you failed to bring it back with interest. I'm not happy about this. I'm going to back away from you. I'm going to act in resentment or coldness or whatever. Well, okay, well, what were you after from the beginning? I was after something for me, okay? There you go. Well, that's right. And I wasn't truly regarding others' interests as more important than my own. I wasn't. Because I, I may have said I was using the love word, but I really wasn't walking in humility. So this humility makes room for relationships that have these kinds of words in it. I love these descriptive words. Encouragement, comfort, love, affection, sympathy, unity, unselfishness, setting aside of personal agendas and ambitions. What a powerful word and concept. To be humble, to be in the position God has put me in is to enable those things to happen in our relationships. What a church we would be. For people to come in and find encouragement and comfort and love and affection in our setting. And it comes from humility. Charles Spurgeon says, The apostle knew that to create concord, you need first to beget lowliness of mind. Men do not quarrel when their ambitions have come to an end. When each one is willing to be least, when everyone desires to place his fellows higher than himself, there is an end To party spirit, schisms and divisions are all passed away. And listen, this is true for a church. It's true for a marriage. It's true among siblings who can rub each other the wrong way and be interested in their own personal activities and they can do it whether they live in a household or whether they are off on their own now and they still have issues with one another. Humility enables relationships to be godly the theology behind this event. Look in verse 6. Humility dissipates our desperate grasping for and dependency on position, right? This humility that was demonstrated by Christ, it is described by the God himself who didn't grasp for position, Right? He did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped. It wasn't because he was not equal to God, right? Jesus was every bit as much God as the Father is God, every bit as much God as the Holy Spirit as, is God. But somebody's about to take the form of creation. Somebody who created everything is about to become a piece of creation himself. What staggering humility! And to do that, he would give up position to do it. That's a challenge, isn't it? How many of us just love giving up position? Whatever that is. Work for a long time to gain respect, to gain some form of authority. The idea of giving it up and becoming something that's unnoticed, unappreciated. Wow. Wow. That's hard to arrive at. But but what incredible freedom is in this? That the Lord of glory, the one who possesses the unique role where everything is a spotlight to shine on him, walks away from that. What liberty this humility is to not have to have that. Position. That's, how, that's how that operates in us, right? I've got to have that. I've got to have that status. I've got to have what that guy's about to get. I've got to be noticed that way. And it operates in us like that. The life of pride is a life of grasping and striving and ambition and contention and strife. Right, when I want what I want and you are in relationship with me, at some point, my ambitions for my glory is going to ignore you or hurt you or step on you. It's just going to do that. Right, here's a good question for us. What is it that you find yourself grasping for in this life? Right, if I took a five-minute break right now and said, okay, quick, write a quick paper on that, will you? Get some paper out right now and write down, what is it that you find yourself in this life Grasping for, than that you want to desperately possess, that you can't possibly give up or not have. Right, that'd be an interesting thing for us to come to grips with. In verse 7, humility can do downgrade and diminishment. Right? He emptied himself and took the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. Right. This is Jesus who is on the throne of the universe, where there is a 24 7 event taking place of constant applause and praise and amazement and awe. Special beings have been created to worship God around the throne who never ceased to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty and to be in awe and amazement and wonder. And Jesus is going to step away from that and take quite a diminished task. This is is much worse than being sent down to the minor leagues from the major leagues. He's going to become human being. And worse than that, a servant human being. Even the human beings aren't going to applaud or notice. He's from Nazareth for goodness sake. If he had been somebody important, he'd have been born in a palace. He's not even important. This This is the status that he's about to embrace. This is is what humility does. Listen, in good news, this is what humility enables. You know know what you'd never find Jesus? He's in this position, this entry-level position, this unrespected, unvalued position. Okay, I challenge you to open the Gospels up and find me one spot where Jesus is complaining. He has suffered the worst of downgrades that ever existed, how do you deal with that? I complain. I'm sorry. I mean, somebody needs to hear me. My poor wife probably is one's gonna hear me. But I'm not happy about this. Something's wrong. Something's wrong. I've, I've been downgraded. I've been set back. I've been overlooked. I've been unnoticed. There's no opportunity for me. And yet the Son of God never complains. That's incredible humility. Remember, this, is, this, is, this baby is the God of Isaiah 42, the one who created everything and gives breath to everything and gives life to everything. This baby is the one in the scene with Isaiah. In Isaiah chapter 6, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and seated on a throne and Remember his encounter with this God? He falls at his feet. He's like a dead man. I am on unclean lips. This wondrous, awful, amazing God is the one in the manger. That's a a downgrade if there ever was one. Charles Spurgeon says he was the creator. And we see him here on earth as a creature. The creator who made heaven and earth without whom was not anything made that was made. And yet he lieth in the virgin's womb. He's born and he's cradled where the horned oxen feed. The creator is also a creature. The son of God is the son of man. Strange combination. Could condescension go farther than for the infinite to be joined to the infant and the omnipotent to the feebleness of a newborn babe? It'd be uh, be pretty amazing enough if he'd just taken on the form of a man, been born in a palace as a human being. That's pretty pretty amazing, wouldn't it? But he's taken on the life of a servant, and he becomes obedient to the point of death. And I think there's a reason why the Bible says it like that. Not only because that death is what brings us any hope for ever being right with God, but because death sits in our minds and in our, our thinking as the ultimate of ultimates, doesn't it? I mean, you just can't top death. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm going to beat you up. I'm going to beat you so bad. I'm going to beat you, drag you backwards. I'm going to beat you bad, man. That's not, that, you know, I'm going to kill you, right? I mean, I've just, I've gone as far as I can go. It's the ultimate thing. And he is about to embrace the ultimate thing. He's going to embrace death. A death he did not deserve. And a punishment that was not his Now, ponder that for a moment because in the background of life, I hear a lot from people, I hear it echo in my own life, this sense of that's not fair. Ever use that expression? Coupled with, I don't get this. I don't deserve this. That's not fair. I don't deserve this. That's not fair. I don't deserve this. Yet the one for whom, the ultimate one for whom this was not fair, and the ultimate one for whom he did not deserve this, never said those words. So it must not be humility that says those words when we say it. Right? That's not fair. Is it humility that says that? Or is it pride that operates in me? I don't deserve this. Humility says that. This is my pride who says that. It's my seeking of glory. It's you understanding you are setting me back from my glory pursuit. I don't deserve this. That's not fair. I was on my way. This was going well for me. This was going to be working out favorably for my glory pursuit. And now it's this big setback. And okay, the Son of God never says that. And interesting, this verse ends in verse 9 in a rather interesting way here. Therefore, right, as as a follow-up to his humbling himself and becoming a man, living as a babe, going to the cross, enduring a death that was not his own, therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every Name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. This too is humility, where God puts Jesus in his place. This suffering servant, this not grasping, who lives in this season upon the earth as a servant who would end in a horrible, humiliating death has been exalted to a position that is like no other position in all of creation. By the way, it's the position he has always had. So this is, this is what's interesting, right? I mean, there is, a, there is a humility on both sides of it. It is just letting God put you in your place. Now, boy, it's a little hard for me to, to not grasp to keep that place, Right? I I want to stay in this place of favor. I want to stay in this. What was it about the Son of God that he could release position and he would get it back? I've got to think this is what it looks like to know God well and to be surrendered to him, to trust him. Humility involves an incredible amount of knowing God and trusting God. Because it's going to look like loss for you over and over and over again it's going to look like you're preferring someone else and you're going to suffer the loss of it, right? I mean, stand your ground in your marriage or be humble, all right? If you're going to be humble, who's going to get their way? Well, it feels like they're going to get their way. Well, when they got their way with the Son of God, they ignored him. They celebrated everything around him but him. They excused away his miracles, and his power, and the good that he brought, they opposed him, they mocked him, they spit upon him, they nailed him to a cross, and they watched him die. That's what they did when Jesus made himself available to be humbled. All right, now there's something in and of itself right there in that story that doesn't make me go, oh, hey, where's the line for humility start? I want to get in line there. I've got to know that God is in charge of my position. It's up to him, whether that's a three-day venture or a 30-year experience. It's up to him. He has a right to assign us to whatever it is that he's assigned us to so that his glory can be shown. Even if I feel like, well, when I'm in that status and I'm in that role... It doesn't sound really glorious for me. There's not going to be a lot of people applauding me when I'm in that place. Well, I'm in that place for the glory of God so that his story can be told. And what a story, right? Did we sing about that story today? We sang about the Lord of glory who came as a man and who accomplished all this. And now God hath exalted him to the highest place and put him in his place. Listen. You humble yourself. God will make sure to put you in your place. Do you trust Him to do that? That's what's in this amazing incarnation story. Eric, you can go ahead and come on. I'm not sure where you are. Let me close with this thought from Andrew Murray. In his book Humility, he says, "The pride that Satan brought from hell and whispered into the life of humankind." is working daily, hourly, and with mighty power throughout the world. Men and women suffer from it. They fear and fight and flee it. Yet they don't always know where it has come from or how it has gained such terrible supremacy. No wonder they don't know how to overcome it. Pride has its root and strength in a spiritual power outside of us as well as within us. As needful as it is that we confess and deplore it, it is satanic in origin. If if this leads us to utter despair, and, and it did for me, of ever conquering or casting it out, it will lead us all the sooner to that supernatural power in which alone our deliverance is to be found. The redemption of the Lamb of God. The humility of heaven brought down By the Lamb of God to cast out Satan and his pride. The life of God that entered human nature through the incarnation. What a gift. What a gift is this humility. This life is the root in which we are to stand And grow, right? It is the DNA out of which these things emerge. In view of this, it is important that we know who Christ is, especially the chief characteristic that is the root and essence of his character as our Redeemer. There can be but one answer. It is his humility, what stands before us in this story, this Christmas story, this babe in a manger story is an incredible gift of freedom. There aren't any greater chains in your life or my life than the ones that I install. I know it's really tempting to think, well, no, no, it's what somebody did to me. It's the way I was raised. It's the opportunities I didn't have. That's that's what's controlling my destiny. Can can I tell you, you are controlling your destiny more than anything else. And the worst chains that hold you in place is your own self-interest and pride. It, It is the glory game that we wake up and play every day of our lives. Because we're not afraid of touching glory. Can I I just remind you, you can't wield what you're trying to touch. It will corrupt you. It will corrupt everything about you. It's not made for you. You're a creature. It's made for the creator. And I need to leave it alone. And if no one ever notices that I'm great and glorious, I don't need them to. I need them to notice he is great and glorious. What liberty and freedom it is to get out of that game. Stop playing it with each other. Stop playing it with myself. Stop playing it when I wake up in the morning and I think about what to manipulate and what to do this day. And who to be around and who not be around. What to say, what not to say. How to dress, how to look, how to behave. So that somehow I can can touch glory get a little glory for me. What a gift God gives us this morning. He says, here, open this one first. It'll get you out of that game. Here's what I'd like to encourage you to do. I'm going to close and let Eric lead us in song. And, and I'm, I'm not going to call for an immediate response because here's what I want to rescue us from. Because I know we do this, and it's not inappropriate to do this. You know, let's let's come forward and let's pray and let's let's let God do something, and He does in those moments. And it could be a, a momentary decision. It could be something that God floods in and does. I've, I've not met anybody who had their hands laid on them, a prayer prayed, and they were delivered from pride. Sorry, if you're here this morning, please come talk to me afterwards. I want some of what you got. Besides Peter Basil. Um, here's what I'd like to encourage you to do. Would you be willing to examine your own life and to explore the pathway of humility? Because I think it's a pathway. I think it's something we take steps in and God begins to show us more, and we take steps in and God begins to show us more. But you have to be intentional about doing it. Because Glory seeking is a very intentional activity, even if it's hidden behind stuff. It's very, we do it, we do it desperately, we do it eagerly. And to seek humility, you're going to have to actually seek it and really value it and want it. And you will want humility to the degree that you want God to receive all glory. whatever level I struggle with humility, it's because I want something that belongs to God, just like Satan did, just like Eve did. It's in me, too. So, you know, examine, God, in what ways am I seeking glory? Help me see that. And God, begin to help me see humility. And, I, and there's, a, there's some great books out there on humility. I encourage you. Andrew Murray's book is a short read. It's a, it's a, it's a rich read. Great place to start. But... St- can I just encourage us to start down the path? When humility characterizes us, when the DNA of this mind that was in Christ is in us, and we smell the beauty of humility, what, what a church people would be experiencing! What marriages we would be having, what homes we would experience. And we can. This is the gift God has given us in the incarnation. Let's, let's stand up together. Lord, I don't know what the personal pecking order of gifts are for us this year as we approach gift giving and gift receiving. We're... Looking forward to that special gift that we just know someone's going to give us. But Lord, this gift of humility, this attitude, this mind that was in Christ. Lord, it's it's not a gift to leave unwrapped. It's not something to leave in heaven. It's not something to treat like, well, that was Jesus, because the Apostle Paul didn't treat it like that was Jesus. He treated it like it was for us. Have this in you that was, by the way, also in Christ. So, Lord, this miraculous mindset is to be ours, a humility that regards others as more important than ourselves an ability to not seek for glory for us, but to love glory only going to you, to be willing to take the form of a servant and to be obedient in our servanthood, even to the point of death, because we know, God, you are in charge of our position. You will put us in our place. And Lord, if our place brings you glory, Through death, through resurrection, through life, Lord, may you receive glory. May that be our greatest treasure. May we know the liberation and the joy of getting out of the business of seeking glory and loving, giving glory to you. In Jesus' name.
1: You came to us, a man. In very nature, God, pierced for our iniquities as you hung upon the cross. But God exalted you to the highest place and gave to you the right to bear the name above all. But at the name of Jesus we would bow. And every tongue confess that you are Lord. And when you come in glory for the world to see. We will see. To the king and all true and living god and at the name of jesus we will bow as every tongue confesses you Your glory, God. Be humbled by your glory, Lord. We would, would would we participate in your glory, God, in the way in which you have desired us to do that. Lord, namely by us responding to your goodness, responding to your your faithfulness to us, Lord, and and being secure in all that you've done in Christ for us. Lord, so be with us this weekend this week coming, Lord, as we're with our families, as we're celebrating your birth. Jesus, would you be greatly glorified this week, we pray. It's in your Son, Father, we pray in his name, Jesus Christ, amen. Amen. Be blessed.